Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right, good morning, church. Go ahead and take a seat. We've been having some feedback issues, so hopefully we will deal with those and not have them, but we will see. Uh, hopefully you took advantage of your extra hour of sleep this weekend, and if you didn't and you showed up early, that means you're officially on a setup team here at Sojourn, so welcome to the team. We're glad that you are going to show up now early to help us set up. Uh, that was my joke, and no one showed up early, so... Um, <laughs> We are in our final series, our final week of our fall series, We Are the Church. And this week we're going to be looking at the future church and what it will look like eventually, and that will, what we're attaining towards basically as a church, like what it is that we're doing now. Some weeks, week in and week out, it's almost like a dress rehearsal. It's almost like a, a sample of what is to come, and I'll explain that as we get into our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation is a book of the Bible I've never actually preached from, and I'm a kind of honestly, as a still, I think, considered a younger pastor, afraid to actually touch that book in a full detail as far as studying through it, but we will be in Revelation this week, so it's the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 5, uh, if you want to go ahead and be and turn your Bibles there. So I heard a story this week of a college student who asked his atheist professor, what do you believe the future holds for mankind? Professor thought for a moment, and then he gave a quick, forthright, surprising answer. I'm not very optimistic. When I look at the contemporary world, I discover not much has changed. I'm not hopeful about the future. He then concluded by saying, and this to the entire class, I believe the future holds for mankind a certain destruction and a potential annihilation. I have no reason to be encouraged about the future. Now, if I have the same worldview as this professor this atheist professor, then I 100% would agree with his prediction. And I think we'd almost have to. And considering we live in the most atheistic city in our nation, my guess is this is the outlook of a lot of people that are around us. A lot of our co-workers and, and roommates and people in our city, people walking by the building, I can see out the window right now, like they most likely hold this worldview. And if all we have of hope is hope in mankind himself, then we must save ourselves. And the, and the reality is, if you ever tried to save yourself, um, you don't do a very good job of it, right? You kind of try to pull up your bootstraps and you follow like, this is when it moves into religion and, and legalism and you're following the rule of orders and you fail and you feel bad about it. And you're like, well, I tried again and I failed again. And so if this is all we have is hope in ourselves and humanity, I mean, just look around the last two years. Let's forget all of the rest of history. And there's a, there's a lot of gruesome things that happen, but let's just take the last two years. Like, do we have hope in ourselves? I mean, no, right? Like, I'm like, we're, we're done. I'm over this thing. And so the future would hold for humanity a certain destruction and a potential annihilation. Now, all kind of jokes aside, like maybe that's where COVID-19 came in, right? I guess it's taken us long enough to figure this thing out. And how do we get saved from this? And this is just one sickness that has entered into our world. And so if all we have our hope is hope in ourselves, then yeah, utter destruction is what is to come our way. But as Christians, this is where Revelation 5 comes in. It comes onto the scene and it's going to give us a word of hope, a word of certainty, where we will see all things under the sovereign and secure control of our great God because he is in heaven. And in heaven, we see there's a lion who is a lamb and he has the whole world in his heart and his hands. And we look forward to the future church. I'm tempted to sing the song this morning. He's got the whole world in his hands. I don't know if you guys saying that, but I grew up in church, right? But this is where this song comes from. Like there's a reality to it. It's not just a kid's song that, that's fun to sing, but there's a reality. He's got the whole world in his hands, in his sovereign 
control. Hopefully this nine-week series has given you encouragement for the church. Hopefully it's given you a vision of what the church should be and what we're attaining to as a local church and why you should invest your, your life into a local body of believers and how you can do that. Now, you might have missed a week, and I think every week was important, not because I did most of the messages, but just because of the, the topics and what it means to be a church. And so you can revisit them um, all wherever you podcast. Our guy does our podcast, has updated them all, so except for this message, they should all be on uh, Spotify and Apple and, and Google. And then for the next few weeks in our gospel community, we'll still be discussing some of these topics and some of these themes. And I want to remind you, I always feel this awkwardness and pressure myself that people show up on our gospel community and think, man, this was Matt's agenda. That's why we go to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say about this? And we can't remove the topic. Then we go, what does Scripture actually teach here? Because it's possible that you've been in a church before that maybe didn't teach on some of these things. Or maybe they, they did some of these things poorly. And so that's why I want to go to the Bible and say, what does the Word of God say about these things? Now, in our city, we have relatively few church buildings. It's easy to pass by the ones that we do have, though, and just think not much is happening in them. And there's some truth to that. There, there is, it's possible that there are some that are just lifeless, and they're on their way to death. And tragically, there's many that, that are probably void of the gospel in our city. The Spirit of God is not present in them. It's just kind of a, an empty building. But then there are others, I would say even fewer, that, that contain a body of believers who are faithfully pursuing the Lord, who are faithfully preaching the gospel, and they are displaying the marks of a faithful church that we have looked at the last two months. I know some of those churches. I know some of their pastors. And we, we kind of network together. But I, I bring that up because I think a church may appear to be irrelevant and weak. I mean, I even think about us, right? Like on Sundays, because we don't own this building, we throw a banner up that says Sojourn Church, and we throw an A-frame out that says Sojourn Church. And people walk by, and this is a very active community. There's neighbors across the street that have different flags on their houses than what we have on the house of the Lord on Sunday mornings. And they walk by, and they probably just assume, man, that's an irrelevant and weak group of people. And they're wasting their time when they could be at brunch at Pine State or brunch at Gravy or just sleeping in each week and week out. And so to the unbelieving community around us, the church might appear to be irrelevant and weak. But what we sometimes fail to remember is that the church, the church, is at the heart of God's plan for the world. So it's not irrelevant and weak, regardless how it appears to the world around us. Because God is on our side and we are on his side. And we often fail to remember what Christ did to have a bride. If you're not familiar, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And so when we slander the church and we talk bad about the church, we talk down on the church and we ignore the church and say, I'm no longer going to be part of the church, we're saying, we're basically slapping the bride of Christ. Okay, now I'm married and I love my wife and I know I refer to her a lot in my messages, but if someone walked in here and slapped her this morning, like, you got something coming at you, okay? I know it says to turn the other cheek and she can turn hers, but I'm going to probably <laughs> clock you upside the head. But some reason, we're just like, okay, the church is fine to slander. But no, that is the bride of Christ. The church for himself. And that's why I take this so seriously. I think we all should. And we fail to consider how the church presents to, uh, points to the future. The church in its present form points to our future reality and what it will be like. Now, it's easy for those outside the church to not understand or appreciate the wonders of what's actually happening within the church. But it's also easy for us as Christians to forget. I think we just get kind of in neutral mode, and we kind of just relax, and are like, okay, it's not, a, it's not a big deal, but the way scripture describes the church is we are the living stone in the temple of the Lord. 
That's why the, the, the church is a body of believers. It's not this building that we're in with these four walls and a roof. Like, it is the body of believers. And so when someone complains about a church or even our church, I always look at them and say, well, well, you are part of the problem. I've had people I meet with before, and they go, oh, this and this. And I go, well, what are you going to do about it? They say, what do you mean? I'll say, it's your fault. And I'll say, what do you mean? I'll say, if you're part of the church, it's just as much your fault as my fault or anyone else because it's the body of believers. And so to finish our series, we're going to be looking at John's inspiring vision. John's the, the author of the book of Revelation. And we're going to see his inspiring vision of the future, our future, a future in which the Lamb of God is a missionary lamb who is in control and who is supremely worthy. So let me pray for us as we get ready to get into our text this morning for our last message in this series. God, we come to you and God, we plead that your spirit would be present with us and that God, you would show us the reality that we are to have now and what we're looking towards in the future. Yes, it's, it's going to be a pale reflection of what is to come, but God, that you left it and designed it this way. May we not forget that, that the church is at the center of your plan for reaching the world. God, you gave us this thing called the Great Commission. You told us to go and to make disciples of all peoples in all places. But you left it as the church being that plan, the vehicle in which is going to take us to that future reality. So God, may we see that this morning. May you move me out of the way. May we look to this future reality in its present form as well. In your name, amen. And so the main point of this last message is I want us to look at Jesus and see Jesus as the Savior of the world and all mankind who stands victorious over sin and death in his resurrection. Therefore, he deserves to be honored and worshiped by all of creation now and for the future eternity. And so the first thing we're going to see in the first five verses of Revelation chapter 5 is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. And so verse 1, we'll pick up there, Revelation 5, 1. says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So we have John here. He sees God the Father on his throne. Now the word throne appears more than 40 times in the book of Revelation. And because it represents, the throne represents a place of sovereignty and authority. And so it's kind of recognizing this is where God is. This is his place that he rightly deserves. And in his right hand, we see there's a scroll. And on the scroll, there are seven seals. So naturally, the first question I have is, what is this scroll? What, what is it containing in the scroll? The scroll is the remainder of the book of Revelation. It's a book that if we were going to study in detail, and eventually we will when I put on my big boy pants as a pastor, but it's a book of judgment, a book of salvation, a book of restoration. It sounds like the great plot line for a movie, one that would, would sell out and win awards. Now in the judgment, and we won't go into these in detail, but we see in judgment, we see seals, we see trumpets, we see bowls, we see lake of, a lake of fire. In the salvation, we see that it's, it's made available for Jew and for Gentile, that it's made available for all people in all places, for all tribes, tongues, and nations. And we see the restoration, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. So all the pain and the brokenness that we see on this earth, that there will be a new one. And that it, it won't be that way any longer. There will not be COVID-19 and cancer and all these other things. There won't be divorces and it'll be this perfection that we don't have now. Like I said, it's a very, very exciting book. And what this scroll is showing us is that in a tangible way that God has a definite plan for history and its consummation. So sometimes you might think life seems out of control. Sometimes you might think life seems like it's chaotic and I just don't know what the future holds, right? We're coming up in the end of 2021. Where did 2021 go? Like, I feel like we just started and we're already, people are already putting Christmas decorations out, which is a sin because Thanksgiving hasn't happened. But I'm like, where did the year go? And we're already looking at 2022, 
right? And it's like, man, this world just seems to be like going out. Like so far, the, the, the 2020 decade just has not started off on a great foot, right? I think we're already like, other than getting older, we all want to skip to the 2030s and kind of see what that has to hold in our life. But what this is showing us is that God has a definite plan, right? He holds the whole world in his hands. And so we got, must not forget that, that he is in control, even in, in your life. And it may not seem that way, but this is a reminder for us that it's mapped out. It is all set. This is why sometimes it's good to look at the end of the book, right? We, we read the beginning of the book and we look at Genesis and we go, man, this sounds great. It starts out really, really nice. It's this perfection and this garden. And then we see Adam and Eve do something stupid and they sin, which you can put yourself in that place because you would have done it too. And then we're like, oh man, it seems to kind of get bad from here. But it all points to Jesus with the good news that we get to celebrate Easter, but then every Sunday. And then that happens. But then sometimes we still get discouraged in between when Jesus came and his death and his resurrection. But they go, look at the end. We know what happens ultimately. Regardless what you deal with in this life, regardless of the pain, the suffering, the sickness that you, your family, your friends are dealing with, we have this reality. It's all mapped out. It's all set. And it will not fail. We are guaranteed it will not fail. If you're like me, you'll set out a plan sometimes, right? You got this perfect plan, or maybe you go on a hike and you think we're going to go this way and we'll do this. But some reason you get tripped up on something or you get lost and you lose cell service, right? It doesn't work. This plan will not fail because he is on the one on the throne with a book. And that's where we open up in chapter or verse 1. And it says, verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So we find this scroll. It is waiting on worthy to open it and break its seals. And no servant of God introduced so far, neither elders nor living creatures nor anyone else on heaven or on earth or under the earth had sufficient authority to open the, the scroll and to implement God's secret agenda. And so sensing that the church's history or church's hope stood in jeopardy, what does John begin to do? He begins to weep loudly. And who can blame him? Right? If you were the one writing this book and you're watching this picture play out, like what would you do? I would, I would probably cry and just like, right? Have you ever found yourself just like in tears? You're like, I just don't know what else to do. And so he's looking and he's going, there's, there's no way to implement this plan. We're doomed. So he just throws his hands up. He's crying. And so the implication, the picture that John's giving us is that nobody in creation has the worthiness and authority to be sovereign over history in order to execute this plan and approach that God had given in the scroll and usher in um, eschaton, kind of the end, end of time and the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see some really like, great heroic characters throughout Scripture, don't we? But none of them were, uh, had the authority to do this. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Joshua, not Caleb, not Elijah, not Elisha, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel or Daniel, not James or Peter or Paul, no angel or even archangel. Nobody is worthy is what the point is he's stressing here. And so a universal search is made. And maybe you're part of that universal search. But nobody is found worthy, not one person. Not, not one other God from other religions. No, no other historic figure that we point to and go, man, they almost seem like they were perfect. No one is worthy, which means that heaven has a problem, which means we have a problem. And so that's why John begins to weep. He's going, what are we going to do? There's no one worthy. No, not one. But then we get to verse five and the story starts to shift. Look there. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the elders looks to John. He says, hey, 
Stop crying and look, right? I can see it like you're, you're with a friend who's just like, dummy, stop. Would you look right here? We have the answer right in front of us. It says, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we see these two descriptions of Christ right here. The first one is the lion from the tribe of Judah, and the other is the root of David. Now, these are pointing all the way back to Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11. We're not going to go into those this morning, but if you can jot those down and study on your own. And so we see these descriptions of Christ as the one who is conquering. Now, the significance is these are, are prophecies that the messianic figure, Jesus, is he will overcome his enemy through judgment. And Jesus fulfilled these prophecies with his authority, with his power, and with his strength. And therefore, Christ overcoming the enemy places him in a sovereign position in effect to divine the plan of redemption and judgment. In other words, hey, stop crying. Look, we found one who can actually do this. It is Jesus Christ himself and him and him alone. And that he can actually break the seven seals. He can open the scroll and he can implement the plan that is laid before him. And we see this repeated hope comes as an exhortation to the fact that the Lamb has already overcome the malicious forces who threaten the church. That Jesus has already done the work, so he's kind of looking back and going, it's already happened. It's already taken place. It's not something else that needs to be done. That kind of is a reminder as a, as a side note for our own salvation, right? Once you're in Christ, there's nothing else that you, there's nothing that you can could do in the first place, but there's nothing you need to do for Christ to love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Jesus loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, can you mess up? Yes. Can you sin? Yes. Can you do something stupid? Yes. But then we're able to repent and go back. But you don't have to do that so he loves you. He still loves you in spite of that. He knows that you're going to, because only Jesus is worthy. If you were going to attain to perfection, then you might be worthy as well. But it's only Jesus who is worthy. And when we come to verse 6, we encounter a mystery in the drama of redemption that we're not prepared for what we see. We've been told to look for the line from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. What are we looking for? What is John looking for? I think that's why he misses it. We're looking for a great and mighty king, right? We're looking for this, like, I just imagine this, I remember Gold Jim, I don't know if they still have him, they had this t-shirt with this muscular guy on it, right? And, and all the really buff dudes wear, like, the cutoffs, which I would never wear. Um, but, you know, you got that. I, I think that's, a mad, that's what they're looking for, right? This picture of Jesus coming in, just, like, big muscles, and, like, I'm going to come in with this power and this force. That's what they're expecting to see. But this isn't what John sees, in the surprising story of salvation, what we see instead in this verse, in statement verse 5 prepares us for this, these two amazing verses in verse 6 and 7, two of the most amazing verses in the Bible as we look at our second point of Jesus Christ is the Lord of victory. But we're going to see how he's described here, which is not what John was expecting. And so verse 6 and 7 says, In between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And so we see this conquering lion who now appears as a lamb. Right? When you think about a lion and a lamb, like those are two very different creatures and what they can do is very, very different. So we see the lion appearing as a lamb, but the present victorious effect of the lamb's overcoming resides not in the fact that he continues to stand, but in the fact that the lamb continues to exist as the slaughtered lamb, past tense. In other words, it has already happened. It has already taken place. And so we're able to look back on what took place on the cross. The work has already been done. There's nothing else that we can do to add to it. There's nothing else that needs to be done to add to it. And so we see the Lord's servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter who bears the iniquity of others who achieve their healing. 
What, what Jesus did for us on the cross, what Jesus did for all of us and for mankind on the cross. And this expresses an abiding condition as a result of the past act of being slain. So we abide in this Christ. We abide in this one who could only do what he could do, what no one else was worthy to do. And so we find the lamb. He's depicted as having seven horns. Now I think this is when we study Revelation. We're like, what in the world? is like, you know, we, we, we were at Halloween last week. Like, was this something to do with that or that? Like, no, not at all. Seven is the, the per, number for perfection. And what the horns represent is the power and strength. So that picture of the power and strength that, that is represented in the victorious Christ. In other words, he has perfect power and strength, and he's omnipotent, right? And we wouldn't want to follow God who's anything else, right? I think, once again, we, we listened a few weeks ago, all these, all these idols and gods from other religions, like, that none of them can say this. None of them have perfect power and strength. None of them are omnipotent. We see he has seven eyes. The seven eyes are identified with the seven spirits to show the lamb's knowledge extends to all the, world, to all the earth. In other words, the lamb is all-knowing for all time. Knows what's happening, knows what's going on in your life and my life, but, but broadly than that, like all of the world has knowledge of that. And so we see that he is victorious. He is victorious because he is standing. He is victorious because he is strong. He is victorious because he is now sending and looking out over all the earth for all of time. And all of this is an affirmation of the deity as God who is all-knowing and present everywhere, which points to only what he can do in verse 7. I mean, this is really, really good news, Right? When John was weeping, I think about our, our city, I think about our nation, I think about our world, right? That if you are holding the view of that atheist professor that I shared at the beginning, like, you would want to weep too. Oh, the earth, the world is hopeless, right? And I meet people regularly, and that's kind of the conversation where it leads to. But this tells a different story. This is the hope that we, as those in Christ, have, and this is the hope that we have been given to go and share, right? The seal has been broken. We have the, the, the scroll in our hands now in a very real way, and we are to go and share this with those around us. And no one else can do this, which is why nobody else even attempts to do this. Only Jesus, right? Think about, think about other gods and idols throughout history. Did any of them uh, uh, claim what Jesus claimed? That they were God and that they then came and lived this perfect life, that they didn't die and rich? Like, no, none of them even claimed that because they couldn't be that. No one else even attempts to do this. John Piper says the lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb because Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. You know, I think when he says that he has the right, when we think about even, even salvation, I think a lot of times we think we have the right to things, right? We need to have the right access to this and the right this. You know, even, even in this thing about being in the United States, right? we are not a developing country. Sometimes we, we just assume we have the right to have COVID-19 vaccine first, right? And then we have this and this. And think about people in other nations and in other places that who don't have the access to those things. But then even for when we think about eternity, who don't have access to the gospel. But then we think, man, we have the, the right that God owed us salvation. He didn't. He could have chosen another way, but he chose to do it this way. And we're thankful that he did. Which brings us to our, our third and final point from this message is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. Verse 8. It says, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so we see that the lamb receives the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, what do they do? They had praised God for his perfection as creation. They now sing a new song, a song that celebrates the lamb's redemption. In other words, Jesus takes the scroll and heaven breaks loose. 
Okay? Now, it depends on what kind of church uh, background that you're from or kind of services you've been around. But it'd be like Ben getting up here and just leading us out and just wailing on the guitar while he's on. And we're just like, everyone's hands are raised and maybe we're doing a little jig in the aisle. Like, heaven breaks loose at the news of what has to come because no one was found worthy. And wait a minute, we found one who is worthy and it's Jesus Christ himself. And so heaven breaks loose. And we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down in adoration and they praise and they worship him as they should. We see that the golden bowls here, they're full of incense, which represent prayers for the saints. We see the incense itself is the prayers for the saints, but it shows their pleas for relief and that they're heard and will be answered in God's providential judgment. We see harps, which symbolize instruments of praise. Ben, I want to see a harp next week. And we see them all bend on their knees and put their faces to the ground before the Lamb. They take the posture that we should take. As we give all praise and adoration to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. You know, we see that previously, if we'd say the whole book, they had fallen before God's throne. Now they prostrate themselves and they worship before the Lamb as they affirm his deity. That this is the one who is worthy to be praised. This is the one who is worthy to be worshipped. And then finally, verses 9 and 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So we see the improbability of the lion's victory is being slain as a lamb. Right? Lion King did not write the story this way. <laughs> and the, the lion is, is slain as a lamb, ransoming a multi-ethnic multitude by his blood for all tribes, for all languages, for all peoples, from all of places. Right? Not one people group, not one language group, not one race or nationality gets a leg up on anyone. Jesus, even the playing field, so that we all have an opportunity to surround his throne and to give him the praise and the adoration that he is due. And this also is a reminder for us, well, what we're dealing with right now, present day reality, that the earth will not always be tyrannized by Satan, right? We have a real enemy, and that enemy's on the prowl. We have this thing called spiritual warfare that we deal with day in and day out, but that will not always be the case. That is temporary, Right? right now, the enemy's kind of on the loose, on the free, and, and, and likes to mess with us, right? Likes to mess with our, our city and likes to mess with our nation and our world, but that will not always be the case. His days are numbered, his days are limited. And we see that the first heaven and the first earth that, that stained by a curse through sin that came all the way back in Genesis will one day be replaced by or fully renewed heaven and earth in which Christ's saints will reign in righteousness. And we get to be part of that reigning on the new heaven and a new earth. You know, I think about even just the, the national parks that we have in our own country. You ever been in those? are just beautiful, right? There's some in, in the Pacific Northwest. And I think we're seeing them in their fallen state. Like, what are they going to look like when they're fully renewed, right? The new heavens and the new earth. Like, our mind is going to be blown. Like, I don't think photographs could ever capture it, right? They do a bad job now, but imagine the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll have a new set of eyes to see things afresh and anew. And so we see in these last two verses, there are four reasons that given that the lamb is declared worthy to take the scroll and opens its seals. One is because the lamb was slaughtered, right? That, 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 that there's a process that actually had to take place. And a lot of people in our culture don't, don't like the fact that Jesus had to, had to die. And some people deny that, that Jesus had to actually die in order for the same sins of the world to be forgiven. We see that, that he was redeemed, and he redeemed, or that he redeemed a people for God by his blood. In other words, he ransomed and he purchased 
the, the sin that you and I deserve, that we deserve a punishment, but that Jesus did it on our behalf. We see that from every tribe and language and people and nation, that this is made available, this is made accessible, that it's not only for, for certain groups of people, but for all people. And then finally we see that you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And this is a picture of the future church. A beautiful picture it is. And when we gather as a church family to praise our king, we are getting a foretaste to this future reality as the future is breaking into the present. Now, I love Thanksgiving. Okay? I love to eat food. If Andre would let me, I would probably eat a lot more of it and not necessarily healthy food. Now, for Thanksgiving, I do the majority of the cooking. I make all the side dishes, right? And it's all like sweet potato casserole, and um, I'll make a strawberry pretzel salad, which is not actually a salad, but it's not a dessert either. And then I'll make, you know, pumpkin cheese. I love this stuff. Like, I love it. Now, during the cooking process, like we all do, if you're making a meal, sometimes I'll, I'll try a little bit, right? You want to try a spoon of that, just that, that cream and the pumpkin all whipping together. It just it looks good, right? So I will sample it, and it's a foretaste of the glory of the full meal that is to come. Right? I know that we're going to eat maybe four or five in the evening, and so here it is at like 12, and I'm making this food. I mean, that is so good. That is so rich, and just, oh, I'm just soaking it up. I can't wait till the future meal that we're going to have together. We're going to sit around the table and enjoy all of it, all the side dishes and the meats and all of it together. And so when I think about the song that we sang right before um, that I got up here, it says, we are your church, we are the hope on the earth. That is the small taste, right? This is the sample of what is to come. Right now, I put that on Twitter this week and uh, our social media, and somebody responded like, oh, well, the, the, the meal tastes really, this must taste really bad. And I said, now it's going to be a poor reflection of that, sure. I said, but I'm talking about the pure New Testament biblical form that we find. Like that sample is what we're attaining to and what we are looking at as we follow Jesus. And so our local church, when we gather each week, what we are doing right now is a sample of the future reality. It's a little taste of heaven on earth, of, of the meal that is to come, which is why gathering is so important. This is why I believe in it. That's why I don't believe it's optional. I really don't. That's why I'm committed most weeks to being here. I miss very few weeks because it's a foretaste, right? And I don't want to miss the full meal that's to come, but like I want the sample as well. If I'm out there grilling, I'm like, man, cut me off a little piece of that steak or chorizo. If you're a vegan, give me a little piece of that bell pepper, right? You want to try that and its richness. And you go, man, I can't wait till the full meal is to come. Like, I don't want to miss the sample because the sample is what I have right now. The full meal is yet to come. And so I want to try the sample week in and week out. And one day, this is what it's pointing to, is one day we will be gathered with all the redeemed people from all of time, from all of history, from all places, from all tribes and nations and tongues, singing praise to the Lamb who was slain for sinners. And we will look around and we'll see the sea of people brothers and sisters from all those places who, like us, are redeemed by the work of the Savior Jesus. Now, we talk about the brokenness in our city a lot, or I do anyway, our nation and our world, but our passage today reminds us that following the Lamb into the new creation, where we will experience total peace, complete healing, and unspeakable joy in His presence. Once again, we are, this is what we're inviting people to. This is the journey that we say at Sojourners. Come take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. You'll, you'll get a sample week in and week out but one day you will get the full meal. And so, and, and God has provided us with this sample of that future reality in the meantime in your local church, where you are formed to be more and more like Jesus through the word weekly preached, through your baptism and your identification with Christ's life, death, and resurrection, through the Lord's Supper, where you're reminded again and again of his life, death, and resurrection, and his future glory. 
That is what we do as a local church. And this is why. It's a sample of the future reality that God left it this way. I'm like you. There's days I'm like, I don't know if I want to invest in this any longer. Not you guys, but there's days I'm like, I don't know if I like these people. I want to be around them any longer. But then I read scripture and go, but this is how God designed it. So I am, I've given my life to fight for this, to fight for the great commission, to fulfill it, but also to fight for the way that God left it, the way that God designed it. My feelings aside, this is how it's meant to be. And so it is in the church where you will find a family who can share your joy and walk with you through your pain. It is a blessing from God to be part of a local church and it is encouraging to know that our prayers and that our efforts are not only make a difference for today, but also for the future reality. Don't rob yourself of the blessing. Here's what I actually tweeted out. I said, if you're not being fed by your local church and if you're not being cared for by your local church, then find a different church. But don't rob yourself of the blessing that God has given you and provided you with in the meantime. Okay? And if that's you at this church, you say, I'm not being fed, then let's go afterwards because maybe I just need to get better at delivering messages to you or you feel like you're not being cared for. Let us know. We want to care for you. Right? Don't rob yourself of the blessing. Don't rob yourself of, I have an aunt, I don't think she's going to tune in, I apologize if you, you are, but uh, she used to take her kids to like Costco and Sam's Club, and she, the joke was she would feed them lunch, because they had so many samples, right? <laughs> it was like, that was, that was the meal. But I think like, once again, don't rob yourself of that blessing that God has given you. I believe in this firmly because this is the way that God designed it and left it. So sojourn church, I exhort you to pursue faithfulness to Christ and his bride, the church, as we belong as we welcome, as we care, as we serve, as we honor, as we witness, as we sin, and as we look towards our future together because the Lord of the church loves you with an undying love. So let's love his bride, the church. Let me pray for us and then I'll lead us into our time of response this morning. God, we come to you as your bride, an imperfect bride, but God, one that you look at as perfect because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, who made a way to be forgiven, redeemed, restored to you. God, may we not ignore your church. God, may we not ignore the sample and the blessing that you've provided us in this present reality as we look to our future reality. God, where we'll all be made perfect. And so God, I ask this morning as we move into a time of response that our hearts and lives will be inspected before you. God, that as a result of this series, that we would commit further to you and to your bride. And God, that we would respond with a heart and a posture of worship this morning. It's in your name, by your power, we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we move into a time of response, uh, one is, yes, we'll worship through song. And so, as always, Ben will cut up and lead us as a church in, in a song of praise and worship. And that adoration of that posture that we saw in Revelation 5. Second is we're going to worship through communion. And Luke 22, 19 through 20, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so when we take communion, it helps kind of recenter our hearts. It helps us as a church and as individuals to stay focused on the gospel where we repent, where, where, where we, we are made renewed with God. And so I think about the communion meal right now because of COVID. We're still using these little cups. We used to have a nice fresh bread that we would break and things. But I think of the communion meal, even in this, this form itself, is when you take this wafer, just be reminded what it actually represents. 
That yes, it tastes like cardboard, but the seriousness of it is that it represents Jesus' body, which was broken. So when you fill that little wafer, you know, kind of break into two and the pieces in your mouth, be reminded, like Jesus' body was actually broken for me and my sins and the sins of the world. And when you take this juice, be reminded that his blood was actually spilled on behalf of my sins and the sins of the world. And it's a way to recenter our lives and recenter our hearts because the reality is we all get distracted throughout the week. We all, we all stumble upon something. We all stumble into sin. I promise no one walked in here perfect from last week when we all gathered. And so we're reminded again of what Jesus did. And we point to that reality that is present now but is in the future to come as well. And then the last way we're going to respond, and all three of these would fall under worship. So worship through song, worship through the Lord's Supper, and then worship through our generosity. We believe that God must have a first place in our life, including our generosity. And so some of us give online, if you're like my family, right? And it's much easier and you don't have to transaction with money and things like cash, things like that. We have a box in the foyer that you can give your tithes and offerings there. And then you can also give by mail. And so those are the three ways that we're going to worship this week. And so Ben's going to come back up. And as we do, Sojourn, the time is yours. The table is open. Respond accordingly. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.